0: makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God.
1: Okay, well, thanks, Robin, for reading that. So I bought some um, cutting implements, things to saw off limbs, some, you know, just in preparation for today, um... You know, we take the Bible seriously here at Springwood, and um, so I've got some sanitation kits as well. Try, we'll keep it as clean as possible. Okay. So, um, I thought you were going to do you want that implement there. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be all right. It's all right. It's all right. Thanks, thanks Judy. No, I, look, I, I just, um, it's good to be back. I've been on, on a bit of a break. I call it a break. I don't, it's a bit of a boot camp, really, a bit of a... Bit of a punishing time. Uh, you know, two young boys at home every day. Oh, it's just, it's tiring. But let's let's start there with um, you know, it was good to get good to have a break. I just wouldn't refreshing in a unique way, maybe something like that. Look, um I want to start with, with kids, because kids um and, and I noticed um uh, Pastor Steve in his sermon used kids, because kids give us a really good insight into part of what Jesus is trying to nail in the Sermon of the Mount. He's trying to move people past the letter of the law through to the spirit of the law that and 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 kids are just ripe with examples about this so you know with my kids a big deal is mean words you can't use mean words you know because this is a mean word stupid is a mean word don't use the word stupid don't use the word idiot don't use the, they're mean words and then but then you get like kids they're like okay okay but then what their mind does is well how can i be mean without using a mean word so they've missed the whole point They go, I didn't say idiot, I said silly dum-dum head. And you're like thinking, well, well, you know, you're not really getting it. You see, the point is not that you didn't use the mean words. The point is that you weren't mean. But it actually takes a while for a kid to get that. That it's not about actually... These are all behaviours that we're trying to modify in you so that you start to understand it's not really about the behaviours. And that's why they get confused when they hear sometimes adults using those words but then you try and explain to them, but they weren't actually being mean, but they can't comprehend what you mean by that. Like They're just saying, but you said it was a mean word. So you're trying to move them past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, which is just be kind to your brother. Just be kind to him. Okay. No no internal frustration escaping there at all. It's just... uh Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Look, um, I'm just... um Oh, there we go. Okay. So... We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus says this in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus wants to draw people not to just obey the law outwardly, but to honor God's heart behind the law. To move beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. God wants your heart. Jesus is trying to make your target heart transformation, not behavior modification. God does not want you to approach him like a rule book for you to be clever with, to get behind and actually do the opposite of what he really wants. Because that's really to mock God, isn't it? That's to treat him like some sort of dry rule book that this life is about trying to manipulate so that you can get what you want. I mean, and God sees right through that. And, and actually, to tr- approach God like that is to approach God like he's dumb. Like he doesn't know that that's the heart behind what you're doing, that you're actually trying to live your life the way you want to, and you think you can treat him like a bunch of, like a, like a, like a law book you can use for technicalities and things like that. So Jesus wants us to move us, Jesus wants to move us beyond that. And that's a really good lens to look at the Sermon of the Mount. Particularly these passages, these lovely light passages, um, that that, you know, that bring up a lot of heaviness when we read them. But I think that lens helps us understand at least a good part of what Jesus is trying to do with these verses. Now there's no PowerPoint today, um, so you might have to follow along. Um, if you have a device or a Bible in front of you. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to um, you know, R.T. Francis' commentary, the Tyndale commentary on this, um, this word um, that is used for woman here usually means wife. And so he's not saying, look, don't be sexually attracted to the opposite gender. He's particularly talking about harbouring a desire, fostering a desire for something that is not yours. Another man's wife. So this isn't a passage that's designed to make a young man feel guilty that he has hormones and that he finds the opposite gender attractive. That's not what we want. What We're talking about coveting. We're talking about desiring what is not yours. Now, um, so, and Jesus, and part of what Jesus is doing, it doesn't actually need too much explanation. He's saying, okay, so you don't actually physically cheat with other women. Good start. Fantastic good, that's not a bad thing, but he's saying that you're missing the whole point is if that's your heart, if you obsess over that, if you harbor that, if that's what you really want, if you resent what you, what you come home to every day, if you resent the wife that you do have, then even if you avoid the actual act of cheating, Jesus is just pointing out that you're missing the whole point, like that God does not want you to begrudgingly fulfill his precepts but deep down you have a heart to do everything but the heart of God. God wants you to pursue his heart. And his heart is a heart that wants you to pursue your contentment, fulfillment in your own wife. <laughs> That's what he wants. He wants you to actively cultivate that. To do things that cultivate that desire. To, you know, to, to actually make sure that the habits in your life push your heart in towards God's heart. Now, and if you're a woman in this room, of which there are a few, now, you notice that it didn't address women. Now, this, now we can, this is just a really good example about what it means to be pharisaical. What you could do, if you wanted to take a pharisaical approach to these verses, is you go, well, it didn't mention women, so women get a free pass. <laughs> women can covet other husbands. The Bible does, oh, yes. I don't know why you would do that. That would be very mean. I mean, you have lovely husbands sitting right before you. But... That's, that's actually a good example of what Jesus is trying to move us past. Because once again, that would be approaching God like a rule book. Like you're just trying to find the rules that you have to do so you can get on with doing what you want to do. That's reducing God. That's mocking God. That's completely unworshipful and disrespectful of God. God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to go, how do I pursue the heart of God from wherever I am at? So that's a good start. That's just a a good way to start, that good on you for not actually cheating on your wife. But if that's what you harbor and that's what you fantasize about, that's what you dream about, that's what you cultivate in your heart, then that's still sinful. That's still wrong. You don't get a pass because you manage to tick the letter of the law. So what do we do with this next bit? So we we'll need to bring out the implements now. So if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, in a sobering way, tells us just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Whatever it looks like, the Bible is clear that we are destined to face judgment, We as a humanity, and we use this image at Christmas time and throughout last year, that if God is over there, we as a humanity have turned away from God. That we want to do what is right in our own eyes, be our own gods. We have created distance between us and God, and we and we reflected on Christmas time that. And Judy was reflecting on the love of God all back then that is still the same love today. That at Christmas time, we reflect how God actually is the one who crossed the distance to us. At Christmas time, we remember God crossing the distance to us, coming to be with us. And then he comes to die for us, to take away our sins. And so the Christian is someone who acknowledges what God has done and turns turns away from this way of living and receives that love from where they're at, receives that forgiveness and receives God's invitation to start moving back this way, to start once again desiring and cultivating a heart that wants his ways over our ways. There's no such thing as receiving this forgiveness but wanting this. That doesn't work. God is inviting you back into the relationship you were designed for. So you would be so foolish to cling to anything that is the spirit of this, right? Anything that is to stop you receiving a relationship with God, any lusts or desires that you have, you would be foolish not to sever them from your life because you would want nothing to stop you from turning and receiving and enjoying your relationship with God. Obviously, the point, I I, I don't need to say this from a commentary, but you know, the self-mutilation is not to be taken literally, put the implements away, but it it does indicate that the avoidance of temptation can involve drastic sacrifices. It can involve saying no to yourself in severe ways, you know, and, and sometimes to the ridicule of the world, you know, like even now in Christian circles, you can be mocked by saying you don't watch certain things, you know. You know, because, because you just want to be wise with what you encounter, you know, and, and what you fill your mind with. Now, and, and you know, you don't need to make it a legalistic debate. It's just, well, I'm just doing this for my own sake, for my own purity, Um, You know, like and and but you can be mocked for that, right? You can be mocked for you know some 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 couples choose to have these interesting rules, and I don't mock. I think that's fine. Like you know, they have very strict rules about how they interact with the opposite gender. I think that's fine. Do whatever you need to do, as long as it's not in a judging, condemning way. But do whatever you need to do to maintain your holiness and to prioritize the relationship that matters most, you and God. But What I also want to do with this passage is draw our attention to the here and now, because we should always respect the eternal consequences of sin, but what we must also do is respect the immediate consequences of sin, that to give yourself over to desire won't just burn you up in some other reality. It will burn you up in this life. Desire is a ravenous beast, and if you give yourself over to it and you become someone who what the Apostle Paul would describe as your God is your stomach, in other words, you can't see past your desires, you become an animal. You become base, right? Um, so you, if you, you, we, we as Christians, we inherently believe that the rejection of God's ways are dist- is destructive. It's not just the case of, well, I'm going to do this thing now, and suffer the consequences later. Part of having faith in God's ways is you believe that it brings destruction in this life to the relationships you have now, to who you are now. Um, so one of the ways I like to describe this is if um, if God's up there, and down here is His world. So down here is relationships, um, you know, beauty, nature, all these things. Let's just put money, everything in creation is down here, God's up there. Nothing is bad in God's creation. It has been announced good, actually. Nothing is bad. Desire is not bad. Money's not like nothing in God's world. You can't label what God creates as bad is bad. It can and it can all bless in its right place. Everything in God's world is a blessing in its right place, right? We believe that if you seek first his kingdom, all these things will be added unto you. If you seek first his kingdom, all these things find their appropriate place. But when we look at something in the creation for ultimate meaning and fulfillment, so, so we, we lose this perspective, and then we take something like sex, or we take something like money, or we take something like beauty, and we, and we put it up here, and we suddenly try and make it so much more than it, what it ever was ever meant to be, then that thing turns from something that will bless you to something that will curse you from something that will bless you to something that will devour you and destroy you it will switch from a blessing to a curse can we test this well you know i, I think we can um uh, so if you make so and and you know we're not going to go deep into this in this particular sermon but you know there's plenty of research out out there that if you make an idol of sex and, and you kind of become someone who fully goes down the promiscuous direction, pornography direction, and it's all about desire. I mean, there's lots of research about what that does to your brain, what that does to your ability to relate to your opposite gender, what that does to your ability to make commitments, and what that does in you, to your ability to be faithful. So it reaps a harvest, doesn't it? And what you've actually done is you've taken something that God made to connect you deeply with someone, and it becomes something that isolates you. So something that was meant to bring connection brings isolation and pain. You can use the same idea with money that that if you if you love money with all your heart, you will always feel poor. You know, if you if you if you if, if you give yourself over to vanity, if you trace beauty with all your heart, you'll always feel ugly. Right? Whatever you grab at for alt for everything will leave you feeling like you have nothing because you are chasing meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. So is that a helpful analogy when we think about lust? It's like, like lust is not, obviously sexual desire is God created. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's part of God's created order, but it has a place. It has a place which can bless us, not curse us. And those boundaries are to be respected. And what Jesus is calling us to not begrudgingly go, okay, God, if I have to. But He's calling you in the Sermon on the Mount, you believe as a Christian, it is best and it is good and it is what will lead to the most flourishing in my life and be the least destructive in my life. Too often, I think, when we talk about, like to teenage boys about this stuff, it's almost like, you know, because God said, so you've got to keep yourself self-controlled. How about, how about because he's called you to something where all these things have their right place and they will bless you the most if you respect those boundaries? So we've kind of covered that bit. Now let's go to the next bit because the next bit, probably most people when they read it at face value get a bit like, oof. That's a bit hard to read, and particularly in our, in our day and age. So it has been said, verse 31 and 32, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces her, his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember, Jesus wants heart transformation, and Jesus here, I believe his target is, is the heart that doesn't value fidelity, that doesn't value faithfulness, that has a flippant approach to that. And a little look into the context Jesus was speaking to helps us grapple with this. So um, in, in the Jewish culture at the time, the permissible grounds of divorce were debated. So there's these Old Testament laws, and what they would do is they would kind of extrapolate those laws and land in different places. And so um, there was the school of Hillel, and, you know, um, sorry, uh, wait, wait, Which ones? I've got to make sure I refer to the right school. No, the school of Shammai, they kind of had this list and and it could be like a sexual misdemeanor authenticated by witnesses, those sorts of things. But most practice was by this group called the school of Hillel and they basically included anything, any complaint a man could make about his wife and get a divorce. And they they justified it by the laws of Moses. They extrapolated it to mean like it could include things like burning the dinner, apparently. If you burnt the dinner, then you could justifiably... You know, I don't know. She's an adulterer. She burnt my dinner. I don't know what they did, but you know, and they, and, they, and so they 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 would justify these divorces, um, clearly dishonouring the heart of God. So what it seemed to be, this is my understanding. It seems there was this situation that there were these Jewish men who were applying the wa- applying the law in a certain way to accommodate their desires, discard their marriage vow, but. They got to say, but I'm keeping the law. But I'm ticking the letter of the law. So I'm, I'm sweet, you know. Even though, even though at the heart of it is a complete disregard for God's value for marriage and fidelity, they're going, but I tick the law. If I tick Moses' law, surely God, God's on my side. But it was worse than that. And this helps you understand the injustice Jesus might have been addressing. Because the man comes out of that situation justified by the law, and the woman is smeared as someone who has been unfaithful by burning dinner or something. And so she's scorned by society, and he's just some law-abiding, you know, you can see, right, Jesus is addressing something entirely unjust. How dare you think that you have escaped adultery by ticking the letter of the law? Jesus is saying, mark my words, you are an adulterer, sir. You have disregarded fidelity. Do not think that if you are clever with my law, I cannot see your heart. I can see your heart. And I think that helps me wrestle with what Jesus is saying, right? Does that help you? It helps me kind of wrestle with what he's saying. It says, verse 32, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immor- immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus could well be saying, No, this whole situation started because a man hid behind the law to conveniently get what he wanted, to conveniently divorce his wife. You see, here's the thing. Just because you have kept to the law of the day, if at the heart of all this is an utter disregard for fidelity and faithfulness, then you have failed to meet the law. You have failed to meet the spirit of the law. You have failed to honor the God behind the law. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor or your wife or your children as you love yourself. If you have somehow managed to manipulate the law, but ignore your call to love God and love others, then you have failed to meet the law. I don't care how many lawyers you can technically get to represent you. To love God, friends, is to love His ways. To love God is to love His ways. Now, you'll notice, I didn't address and unpack many questions on divorce and remarriage. Um, And to be honest, there's levels of that discussion I'm not quite prepared to go into, into today. But we can all agree, no matter where we are, no matter what journey on life we've had, we can all agree that we are called to enter marriage wisely, with lifelong commitment to faithfulness as our aim. As a Christian, no other approach makes sense. Right? That would be. No other approach makes sense. We have a God who crossed distance to us to maintain relationships. So obviously our marriages, ideally in an ideal world, should have two people willing to cross significant distance to maintain their relationship. Right, Willing to cross significant hurdles of forgiveness to maintain their relationship. But I do want to say with sensitivity, when marriages do break... And it is incredibly complex. We've got two people's wills. There's often levels of unfaithfulness, neglect, bullying, and abuse that are unseen by so many people outside that relationship. And sometimes, in, the, in reality, no matter what we see from the outside, only one was really working at it. There's lots of... Marriages are complex. We're not, I'm not here to speak judgment onto situations I hardly understand or know to people I don't know. Um, That's not what I'm here to do. These things are really hard. But surely as Christians, if we're going to meet the heart of what Jesus is saying, we can declare in the complexity of a broken world that God's heart for faithfulness and fidelity is good. We can all say that, can't we? That it's good. Even though... In this broken world, it's not, that ideal is sometimes not reached. And if you talk to mature Christian people who've gone through divorce and remarriage, it is likely that they will have no problem telling you that divorce is not a good thing. They don't brandish it as like, oh, look, I, you know, that's not what they're like. They're, they're, they'll tell you often it's not a good thing. Even if they feel it was unavoidable, necessary, or the best way forward for a host of reasons. It's a given that anyone who is interested in honoring God would only make decisions in this realm with prayerful seriousness before God because God's ideal is faithfulness, oneness. But here's the good news of grace. In a sense, because of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of the same message to all of us because whether you're married or remarried, divorced, single, or in 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 an aspiring relationship to get married, All of us just need to wake up and honor God's heart from where we are at. What does it look like for you from where you are at in life, embracing God's grace for you today to honor God's heart for these things today? For the single person, it could just be standing for sexual fidelity in a culture that is incredibly promiscuous. In fact, it has morally changed that, see, there used to be a time, so, you know, think uh, think 90s, where, you know, like kind of, being promiscuous before marriage was sort of like, it was still the done thing in large parts of society, but it wasn't praised as good. It was just like, we don't care about those things anymore. um, That sort of spirit. But it's actually shifted that if um, if you choose fidelity and saving yourself and those things, you can actually be labeled immoral and repressive. It's actually gone a bit more, you're immoral somehow by sticking to those things, which is crazy, right? Like, that's just bizarre. But anyway, society goes through funny things. For romantic couples not yet married, obviously it can look like honouring physical and emotional boundaries that honour the fact that a commitment is yet to be made. For married couples, remarried, whatever, it's pursuing God together, doing the hard work of forgiveness, reconciliation, moving in unity. From wherever you are at, it's how do I honour God's heart? How do I honour God's heart? I mean... I, and I, sometimes with i non-Christian people, I, I, t- I find a deep joy in honouring God's heart. So there was a couple, you know, that lived together for ages and they wanted to get married, this non, non-Christian couple, and, and um, one of them had, had a bit of faith. They wanted me to do the wedding, so we did, did some work on it. And to be honest, I, from what they were handed, so they weren't handed the upbringing I was given, they had chosen a very godly path. They had chosen each other in high school Stayed together and got married and basically been faithful to one person and, and, and from where they were at, from what they were handed with, I thought, look, you guys really honor the stuff of God from what you guys know and from what you guys have been handed with like this is awesome that you guys have chosen this path for your life and it was and rather than from starting from a place of judgment, it was like marrying them with a you know from from where you guys were at, that was a wonderful act of just, you didn't know the Bible said this, but the Bible says choose one person and, and, you know, stick with them, and that's kind of what you did. It was awesome, you know what I mean? Um, From what they were handed. So, I know a lot's been said. I feel like I've said a lot this morning. Um, Here's a few things. If you have strayed from that heart, if you have strayed from the heart of God, His mercy is in you every morning. His mercies are new every morning. You are free to receive his forgiveness and follow him and honor his heart today and turn from whatever's going on. Remember, it's about heart transformation, not behavior modification, which means we are all called to the same action point here. Cultivate your love for God. Invest in your relationship with God. Don't you dare have a relationship with God that says, how can I get away with A, B, and C? and God still accept me? How about love God and trust that whatever He has for you is what is best for you? Peter Scazzero has this book, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, and he has this idea that your doing for God should never outpace your being with God. Because if we stay in the doing for God, but we don't invest our relations, you end up resentful. We go to church because that's what God wants, but I don't really want to. You know, we... You know, like we're faithful because God says, but really inside I'm resenting it. Or, you know, like I, you know, like it's that whole begrudgingly following God. What God wants is for you, for, him to, for you to love his heart, to love who he is, to love what he has to say about your life, and to follow it wholeheartedly because you love him. So make sure this year you invest in that relationship so that you are moving from a space that actually wants to please him, That doesn't just do it because God said so. It's like, oh, I can't wait to do this because I love pleasing God. I love pleasing God. I think that'll do this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just um, thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you just for this wonderful sermon where you spoke this beautiful message of calling people to not just treat you like a rule book, but you said, look, you're trying to call people deeper. You're trying to call people to a love for you, which is what you always wanted. People to love you with all their hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and to love you as they love their neighbor and they love themselves. Lord, Lord, may we be a church, may we be a people who doesn't try and tick box, who doesn't try and so go well, what will God, who doesn't ask the wrong questions, what am I allowed to do? What will God let me get away with? What, what are the things I can do but still be acceptable to God? Can we just put that aside and can you replace it with hearts that are desperate to know you, desperate to please you, desperate to pour, give our lives to the one who has given everything to us? Not just, not just because you love us, Lord, but because we passionately believe that whatever you have for us is best and that your heart represents the heart that will equal life, that will equal flourishing, and that anything that goes against your ways will equal destruction. Help us believe that inherently in all we do and say. Keep us closely with you so that everything we do for you comes from a really good heart that wants to please you. Amen.